You're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 70. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. More than anything, this show is home to honest conversations between real people. We're not trying to sell you anything. We're not trying to get you to fix yourself or get you stressed out over any stupid life hacks or anything like that. Instead, it's a space to just be real, to take a deep breath and talk about all the behind the scenes stuff that I think isn't talked about enough, like our fears, challenges, and insecurities, our secret dreams, our real day-to-day life, how it feels to try and make changes, what happens when you don't accomplish a goal, and just the truths of being human in a crazy world. As your host, it's so much fun for me to sit down with everyone from athletes, writers, and entrepreneurs to parents, coaches of all kinds, world travelers, adventurers, artists, activists, the list goes on and on, and to then bring those conversations to you. And fair warning that this is an adult podcast, which means that we often cover adult topics and use adult language. So don't say that you weren't warned because that was your little warning. My hope for you as a listener of this show is that it makes you laugh, think, and just feel less alone. Because honestly, that's all that I ever want, to know that I'm not alone. Something else that's unique about the show is that it's 100% community supported, which means no ads, no sponsors, and no outside influence. Just us here together sharing stories. The show is made possible by listeners like you, awesomely generous people who have pledged $8 or more per eight-episode season. To do this, we use a platform called Patreon, and not only does your support keep the show going, but it also earns you access to over 30 hours of exclusive bonus content with new stuff added every single month. You'll get special bonus episodes with former guests, you'll get my personal end-of-month goal reflections, you'll get access to our brand new book club, you'll have the opportunity to be featured on an upcoming outro, you'll be able to help shape the future of the show, you'll be able to chat with me and other like-minded people on the community's private feed page, and you'll even be able to access my popular weekly email series called Notes of Grit and Grace, which is only available to Patreon supporters. So for all of that, plus lots of stuff added every month, like I said, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the end of the episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our community members who joins me for a quick and hilarious game of Would You Rather and shares what it's like behind the scenes in our Patreon community. So if you believe in this real talk revolution like I do, and if you're in the position to be able to support the show, I can't tell you how much that would mean to me. Thanks so much for your support. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Dara Silverman. Dara is a longtime organizer, writer, and trainer who has been building movements for economic, racial, gender, and social justice for over 20 years. She was the founding director of Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, a national network of white people taking action for racial justice. She's been published or quoted in places such as the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Color Lines, Everyday Feminism, The Jewish Week, and many more. In this episode, she shares the story of how she got into activism and some of the work she's done as an organizer over the past couple of decades, especially in mobilizing white folks to work for racial justice. We discuss the fears that many white people have about doing or saying the, quote, wrong thing. We talk about the false belief that one person taking action doesn't matter, and the simple truth that the best thing that we can do is to listen and to start the work in our own families and communities. She shares action steps we can take, beliefs we can unlearn, and why this is a time for hope and resilience. I'm so grateful to have had this conversation with Dara, and I hope that you get something valuable out of it as well. Awesome. Let's do it. Dara, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really glad to be on. 
So what is something that you are totally obsessed with right now? What's something fun that you like can't get enough of? Mm, something fun that I can't get enough of. Uh, you know, the biggest thing we're talking today, even though I know this is going to be released later, but it's the day of Trump's inauguration. And I think that the biggest thing that I'm obsessed with right now is that there are hundreds and thousands of people who are ready to take action and have never, for many of them, they've never been doing anything political or, um, work that is more broadly political outside of, their own families and friends, and now they're ready to do that. And so I'm pretty obsessed with how do you move thousands and thousands of people into action where they're getting to be their best selves and take on the biggest role that they can and support more and more people to do that. Mm, That's yeah. How do you take that initial kind of spark of, I feel like I want to do something and then actually turn that into tangible action. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say it's a pretty big and exciting thing. So I know, you know, many people are depressed today and depressed in general. And it's a hard time, right? Because so many people are going to be so hurt by the Trump administration and by Trumpism, right? Like the system that he stands for. And that is completely true. And we have to do everything we can to fight against that. And at the same time, I think there's also something bigger about Um, this is the moment when many, many more people move into action. And it's really, uh, it's really heartwarming for me as a longtime organizer and activist to see how many people are ready for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're going to dig into all of that. But what I would love to do first is time travel back when you were young. What did you want to be when you grew up? Um, so when I was young, um, I thought that I would be a social worker. Um, my parents were both sociology professors who moved into doing human service work. And my dad worked with troubled teenagers who were at risk of getting placed outside their house, their homes. And I thought that that's what I would do is that I would help people and um, help make the world a better place one person at a time. Well, that's a beautiful thing. I can't say, I think I wanted to be like a Disney fairy princess when I was young. That was my (laughs) career ambition Um, when I was like five. Your answer is is way better. So I think I'm going to steal that. That's going to be my answer now. Um, (laughs) What was your first job? The first thing that someone paid you to do? Uh, Babysitting. Yeah, that's it for a lot of people. Okay. The first job you had to pay taxes on. That's a better question. Um, I worked at Ben and Jerry's ice cream shop. Nice. Did you get sick of the ice cream? I never got sick of the ice cream, though. I will say I mostly ate the cookie dough. We would get these big bins of raw cookie dough, um, and I ate a lot of that. Yeah, I worked for years at Williams-Sonoma, and I don't know if you have ever been to Williams-Sonoma, but during the holidays, they have, you know, they're really known for their peppermint bark and other candies, and we would get these huge batches to give out as samples, and I thought I would get sick of it, and years went by, and that was actually never the case. I ate so much peppermint (sighs) bark. (laughs) (laughs) so these days when someone asks you so what do you do what's your response um when I say what do I do I say I help people realize their dreams and take action to make them real okay so on a day-to-day basis what does that look like (laughs) 
On a day-to-day basis, that looks like a lot of conference calls and Zoom calls and video calls and one-on-one calls, a lot of time on Slack, which is this messaging app for teams, Um, and a lot of time working one-on-one with leaders and helping them figure out how they can be supporting more and more people to take action. Um, You know, a lot of my work in recent years has been with white people around how to take action against racism and white supremacy, but I work with a whole range of organizations and communities and movements to help do this work and to help um, broaden the movement, yeah. So tell me the story of your first involvement in activism or whatever you would consider activism at that time. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, my parents were, were, um, anti-nuclear activists when I was growing up. So they would take me to anti-nuke rallies when I was a kid. Like I remember one, when I was like seven years old or eight years old and someone from the stage said, there are kids here as young as seven years old who know that nuclear power is wrong. And I remember stamping my foot and being like, seven isn't so young. Um, so (laughs) I think that was when I was participating. And then the first thing I helped organize was that when I was in high school, I grew up in Ithaca, New York, which is a college town in upstate New York where Cornell university is. And Cornell is sort of like the, it's like a company town and Cornell is the company. Um, so a lot of my work was doing things when I was a teenager that serviced the students and the student population. Um, so working at an ice cream shop, babysitting, um, working at a local, um, arts and culture store. Um, and, um, I helped to organize a protest against CIA recruitment on campus, um, and we were on the cover of the local paper that took a journal and got in trouble at our high school because we left in the middle of the day to go and protest. <laughs> You're rebellious protesting. Exactly. I exactly. love it. I love it. So it sounds like you've done work in lots of different kind of for lots of different causes and, and organizations, right? Like it doesn't seem like it's one specific thing. Um, yeah, it's not one specific thing. It's really a range of racial and economic and environmental justice issues. Yeah. What is it about you that makes you well-suited for this work? Um, hmm. I really like people. Um, and I really believe in people making changes in their own lives. Like, I think that was the thing when I went from, oh, I'm going to be a social worker to I'm going to be an organizer. I was in college and for a summer I went door knocking, um, with this group Green Corps. Um, at the time they were working on a campaign with the Rainforest Action Network to, uh, fight deforestation of the rainforest, um, by Mitsubishi, which was cutting down rainforest to build parts for cars and things. And uh, just going door to door and talking to people, it helped me realize that people can make changes. And that's so much more powerful for people to make changes in their own lives than to try to support people under a system that is inherently set up to, to, to keep people down. And so how we band together and fight on that together makes an even bigger difference. And I was like, that's awesome. I want to do that forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm always interested when someone's been doing, obviously, I know you've had like an evolution, of course, in doing different projects, different things, but doing something similar for such a long time, which I, I mean, I can't relate to. I've done a million different things where have there been times where you're like, maybe this isn't for me, or maybe I'm going to try something else. Or is this just always fundamentally, you knew this is what I want to do. 
There have definitely been times when I've been burnt out. Like when I first, I used to work on electoral campaigns. So I worked on ballot initiatives, like to get big money out of politics or um, things like that. And, and you know, on a campaign like that, you work so hard for such a, a specific period of time that I would work on a campaign and then I would go like work at a smoothie shop or I would work on a campaign and then I would go, you know, be a waitress or whatever it was, like when I was in my 20s. And then at a certain point, I started to move off of campaigns and into organizations and more like longer term jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I used to really build in those breaks. And I actually think that was really smart um, because burnout is such a huge issue in social justice work. Um, And there have definitely been times when I've been burnt out and I didn't realize it. And at a certain point, my body was like, okay, you're taking a break now. Like we're not listening to the brain anymore. We're listening to the body and, and there's no sort of artificial separation between the two. So we're just shutting down right now. Mm -hmm. Right. And being able to hopefully do something before you get to that point. Exactly. Exactly. It's crucial. And so a big part of it, I think is, um, learning to, to be in touch and to know what good boundaries are so that I'm taking care of myself. And so all of us are taking care of ourselves to be able to be in this work for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious what you think maybe a few of like the myths or misconceptions people might have about the work that you do. Like, what do you think it would surprise other people to learn? Um, Probably how much time I spend on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What do I think people would be surprised? You know, they had this thing on Facebook a couple of years ago, I feel like, where they would have, there were like six pictures and it would be like what people think you do, what your mom thinks you do, what your teachers think you do, what you actually do. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. (laughs) I remember those going around and being like, huh, what would this be like for me? So I think sometimes people think it's a little more glamorous because I do travel a lot to work with groups. Like I just got back from California, but I live in New York and it was 50 degrees there and it's 20 degrees here. But, you know, a lot of the time, like the way back, I I was on three connecting flights with like 20 minutes in between. So there was a lot of like running in airports. So sometimes it feels a lot more like the bad parts of Jerry Maguire than like whatever the vision of a social justice warrior is. Like there's just a lot of mundanity and a lot of working in Google documents and a lot of phone calls and really just a lot of listening to people and supporting them to like, a lot of times people already know what to do. They just need some support to figure it out. And so a lot of it is just really being present with other people and helping them figure out their the path to, to get there. Mm-hmm. I'm always so grateful when people talk honestly about the mundane aspects of like what could seemingly you know, be seen as like a sexy job, right? <laughs> like that's so true. Like it's people have their mm-hmm. opinions about it, but it's true for so many different things. Like we think it's one thing, but it's a lot of minutiae. Like this, another guest this season, Hannah Shaw does um, kitten rescue and animal activism and stuff. And she was like, oh yeah, it sounds like really sexy. Like look at these cute kittens, but same thing. She's like, I'm going to the post office. I'm doing this. I'm on the phone. I'm like the actual day-to-day mm-hmm. stuff. She's like, it's not sexy at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I think there's, um, just a lot of pieces that go into, there's a lot of cogs in the, in the process to, to make things real and to, to move, you know, tons of people into action. And I I think a lot of what I do is sort of help with some of those gears behind the scenes so that it all can happen really smoothly. 
So the way that I first found your work, I know you know this, um, was from the Healing Toxic Whiteness workshop that you mm-hmm. co-taught. I would love for you to talk about, first of all, what that kind of phrase means, toxic whiteness, or you know, share what your role in that workshop was. Mm-hmm. Um, so the workshop is, is mostly run by, um, Sandra Kim, who's the publisher and founder of everyday feminism. And I was sort of a guest teacher who came in and would do a part about some of the core pains of whiteness and of toxic whiteness. And, um, we have a really, from my part, a really good connection. Cause I think what, um, Sandra has the capacity capacity for is to hold the process that a lot of white people are in around recognizing and sort of waking up to both the whiteness and the the world that we live in that benefits white people every day and in so many different ways. Um, And then to um, support and challenge white people to move out of sort of those habits that we get stuck in of fragility and of um, internalized racial superiority, as they say within the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond trainings, um, and so many of the other habits of white supremacy to really recognize those and to share practices for moving through those. Um, so I think one of the best things for me about getting to be a part of the course is to meet so many of the participants, because part of it was that I would do coaching with folks and to, to get to talk to them about how they were applying these new practices of recognizing how whiteness was showing up in their life and um, support them to sort of choose a different path. Um, Pema Chodron, the Buddhist philosopher and, and um, teacher, talks about getting hooked And I think about that a lot in terms of fighting racism in that um, a lot of times with white people, it's like racism and white supremacy are are the water that we're swimming in all the time. And so we can't really see it. And so then within that, there are certain things that get us hooked in our patterns. And it's like, can we slow down enough to recognize that there's a hook there before we bite it? Hmm, That's interesting. Do you have any specific examples that come to mind that you could share? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's a ton of examples. Yeah, go for it. Um, I mean, I think I was in a meeting for the past couple of days out in California and just watching the ways in which um, whiteness can play out in the group, like the way that white people feel really comfortable interrupting people of color. Um, You know, it can be very similar to the way that sexism plays out, though, of course, it's different. um, And the impact is different, but it's it's similar to the way that men um, interrupt women. Um, you can see that a lot. I saw it a lot in the meeting that I was in the way that, um, white people's voices or ideas would be valued more. And sometimes even people of color would say something and there would be a moment where nobody really responded or reacted. And then if a white person backed it up or said it again in a different way, everybody would respond and get really excited and sort of go with that idea without acknowledging that a person of color had said it first. So those are really um, interpersonal or individual examples. And I think the much more damaging piece about um, whiteness and um, toxic whiteness is how it shows up in our structures, you know, in schools, in churches, um, in government, in healthcare, in so many of the systems that we live under and how it maintains power for those of us who are white to keep going and to not have to question, you know, our rights or our capacity 
Um, and I think this moment that we're living in under Trump and Trumpism is really a moment when a lot more white people are saying, oh my goodness, I, I hadn't realized how bad things were and now I'm starting to feel it for me. But you know, for people of color, for immigrants, for Muslim and Arab and South Asian people, for queer and trans people, there's already been that pressure and that oppression and now it's gonna get even more intense. Mm -hmm. um, but for a lot of white people, we're just starting to recognize it. So it's just a real process. And I think the course for me is really about supporting white people who are on that journey to take the, the next move um, to be in a different place and to be able to name and engage um, both with each other and in our families and in a broader world where we're not sort of expecting people of color to explain or educate to us, but where we have places to do that with each other and within ourselves. Yeah. Was there, you know, for the part of, of the course or workshop, whatever you want to call it, that you teach and you said that you also do um, coaching with some of the participants. Is there, a, you know, a main message that you're trying to get across? Like, what would you love for, for everyone to walk away with? You know, that kind of goes yeah. through that teaching with you. I mean, I think the main thing to walk away with is um, the sense that we are not static um, and that our anxiety um, you know, someone who I worked with a lot, uh, who's a leader in the movement for black lives, Maurice Mitchell, um, was on a call, um, a few years ago. And he said, um, white people's anxiety about trying to get it right has nothing to do with black liberation. Um, and so I think for me, a lot of what that is, is that as a white person, I can have a fear that I'm going to make a mistake and that that is going to hurt people of color around me more. And really what I've heard over and over and over again from people of color in my life and who I work with is that white people making any sort of effort to resist, to call other white people in, to engage is so much more powerful than being silent and just standing by. And so now is one of those moments um, to really be taking those actions, to be naming when there are oppressive things that happen, to be doing this work. And so um, I'm really excited to be a part of communities that are doing that and to be um, working with other people who are trying to engage and deepen that effort and to build the capacity of white people across the country um, to, to make change happen and to not live in that moment of fear, even though we know that we're going to make mistakes because we often can't see all the ways in which our racism or that racism has impacted us and we can't see the things that we can't see. And so, um, a big part of it is how do we take risks and learn from our mistakes and keep doing it anyway. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, if I'm just reflecting on personal conversations with friends, with family, you know, just especially, you know, in recent months, as you pointed out, that some of the common themes that I have heard coming up in these conversations that I would love, you know, to kind of get your take on. The first that I was going to ask you about was that this the kind of deep fear of doing or saying the wrong thing. Like, I think that really is prevalent that people have good intentions, but then they're so afraid to make a mistake that they don't do anything. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I think that's so true. And so I think a big piece for me is really around like, what are the small bets? And right now is a moment when we need small bets and we need big bets. But I think for the small bets, it's like, what are the little things that we can do every day? You know, when someone makes a joke, 
um, about people who are Muslim or people who are poor, or people who are trans. How do we use humor to 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 talk about the ways and what what it means to to have power and to be making fun of people who don't, you know, when when we're in a school and. Um, they're trying to cut the bilingual education program. What are the ways that we work with other parents to fight that? Um, if we're in a church and there's a question of whether we become a sanctuary community, how do we help move that forward, right? There's so many ways in which we can be doing that. And it's just a question of sort of opening up to that potential and stepping into a bigger role. Mm-hmm. I'd love if you're comfortable around this idea of kind of doing or saying the wrong thing, if there's a story that you can share of a time that that happened to you where you did something and it was the wrong thing to say or do and then kind of moving on from that. Oh, yeah. Um, I do things all the time that are wrong. <laughs> um, and I think uh, one one story from a while ago is that when I was um, 13 or 14 at my high school, um, which is a public alternative school, um, there were some students who were making a video about race and, uh, they interviewed me and they interviewed a bunch of other students. And, you know, I was one of the white students who they interviewed and they, they asked a question about how we all saw racism showing up in our school and in our community. And sort of the climax of the video was me saying, I don't think there's that much racism in Ithaca in the city that we live in. And then the rest of the video was students of color talking about examples of of racism and what it had been like for them. Um, Mm. And afterwards I was so embarrassed and I was hurt and I was like, oh, they took me out of context, blah, blah, blah. Um, But it was such a learning experience for me. And I think it was so useful for everyone else because the reality is, is that even with political parents, even growing up in a very progressive city like Ithaca, you know, most white people don't talk to their kids about race until they're about that age. They're 13 or 14. And most parents of kids of color start talking about race when they're like six or seven, if that late. So it isn't that unusual that I got to that point, even in a political family. But I think it it was really a wake up call for me that there were so many things that I couldn't see and ways in which my actions were really hurting, you know, people of color in my life, my friends, people in my community who I loved. And I really had to learn to listen and to watch and to know throughout that that I would keep making mistakes, but that I was really committed to being on a path for racial justice. And that had to be more than platitudes. Um, and I think recent examples are really that it, it is so um, difficult sometimes for me as a white person, as a middle class person to um, recognize that my view isn't always right. Um, and to um, know, like I was just in a partnership with someone and some consulting that we did and someone, she was leading the project and someone asked me a question about one part of it. And I just gave my opinion and she was like, actually, that's a question that should have gone to me. And I was like, Oh, I didn't even think about that. Right. Yes. I'm sorry. And learning to take that feedback when it's given as a real gift. Um, And to really learn how to incorporate that in and try to do better next time and know that it may take me a lot of tries. Yeah, I think there's something really beautiful in what you just said about that idea that feedback feedback is a gift, right? That it's, I mean, no one likes making mistakes. No one likes feeling embarrassed or feeling like they hurt someone. You know, I think, especially if that's not your intention, like, I don't think at any point you were like, let me see what I can say that's going to be offensive and hurtful to people. Really, clearly not. But it's, 
I don't know, being able to switch your mindset to just accepting, I'm definitely going to make mistakes when feedback is given to me. That's a gift. I'm going to take it. I'm going to continue to learn and evolve. Like, I really think that's like a fundamentally different mindset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, easier said than done, but important. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's so real. You know, I was um, facilitating a training recently with a multiracial group of women and it was the beginning part and I was, you know, it was like 50 people and I was trying to bring them back together and I said, okay, if you can hear my voice, raise your hand and gently close your mouth. And right afterwards, you know, when I moved them into the next activity, one of the other trainers of color came up to me and they said, it's probably not good for you as a white facilitator to ask people of color to be shutting their mouths. And I was like, yeah. oh, right, totally good point. I will change what I will never say that again. But I hadn't even thought about it, right? Because I was used to, I had been doing that a lot with mostly white groups. And, you know, when you have 50 people, it can be kind of rowdy, blah, blah, blah. And it's such a little thing, some of the words that we use, but just recognizing those moments of, you know, how many times do we ask someone where they're from if they're a person of color or they're an immigrant? How many times do we ask people to pronounce their names again? Like all the little things that sometimes when we have power and we just don't get what someone's um, saying or it's different than what we expected, that we expect people to sort of respond to us. Um, And that was one of those examples for me of like, oh, I didn't even think about the impact of that, um, even though it wasn't my intent and I'm going to change. I mean, I think that even... I don't know, getting over the the personal obstacle of wanting to defend yourself in that situation, yes. right? Like I see that, and obviously we're talking specifically, you know, about one topic, but I think that that's, it comes up in every area of my life when I'm like, oh, I, I hate the feeling of being misunderstood. You know, that's not what I meant. Let me re-explain to you what I, it's, it's a very hard habit to break, I find. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, completely, completely. And it takes a lot of humility, Um, And I think one of the the pieces in doing racial justice work as a white person is really a lot of times people really feel like, well, you know, it's hard for me to do this work because I don't have any examples of it. I don't have any ancestors in it. I come from a family with cops or security guards or um, people who I'm not proud of in doing this work. So how can I learn to do it? And some of it, I think, is really seeing ourselves as, you know, descendants and like, humble ancestors, as Dove Kent, who was the director of Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, which is a group in New York that I used to be the director of. She was the director after me. And she said recently in a conversation that I heard, she talked about being humble descendants. And I think for a lot of us, we need to see ourselves as humble descendants, even if they're not, you know, our blood relatives. But there are so many people like the Grim K sisters, um, who were abolitionists and John Brown and Paul Kibble, who wrote Uprooting Racism. Um, There's so many people who we can look to as our elders and as our mentors in doing this work. It doesn't just have to be people we're related to. We just aren't told that history a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something else that has come up in conversations, you know, I mentioned the fear of saying or doing the wrong thing. Something else that has come up is this idea that it has to be all or nothing. You either are like, you quit your job and you do activism full time or you do something that's going to have a huge impact or why bother because small things aren't enough. I, I feel like I've heard some version of that a lot and I'd love to hear you speak on that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think small acts of resistance are what movements are changed by. You know, everybody is not going to be a full-time activist, you know, during the Vietnam War, during the Black Civil Rights Movement, during the struggle for abolition. At all of those points, there was never a majority of people where it was their full-time work. Normally what it is, even in the streets at protests, it's it's rarely more than 3% of the people who are actually active. And what that does is that it moves a large percentage of people who are taking, you know, whose opinions change and who sway to support a different policy, whether it's being against the the invasion of Vietnam um, or against slavery or believing that women have the right to vote or believing that Black Lives Matter and supporting policies that support that. Um, there are so many different things. And so I think it's so much about the, the small interactions you know, and that's what really changes people's mind. One of the things that they say around gay marriage is that what moves people is their interactions with someone in their life who's gay, with someone in their family, with someone who they work with, with someone at their kid's school. And so I think it's really about building relationships and about sort of that action of calling people in. You know, we're so used to in a lot of activist cultures, there's a real focus on sort of being the one who has the right answers and is most politically correct or down. And, you know, in white communities, there can be this piece around performing sort of the most anti-racist or woke person, being that person who has it all together. But I think the reality is, is that we are messy and awkward and we don't have it figured out. Um, And I think a big part of it is just really realizing that it's all a process. And right now in this time period, it's so much going to be about like small acts of resistance and these small bets of, you know, one-on-one conversations, showing up at the school board meeting, speaking up at your synagogue, social justice committee meeting, you know, whatever it is to be ready to um, intervene in those moments. You know, if someone's being yelled at on the street, how do you go and stand with the person who's being yelled at and interact with them and sort of deflect, uh, that, um, uh, that person who's attacking them and help move them into safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which makes me think kind of the third, and I'd say probably most prevalent thing that I have heard and said for sure is I definitely want to do something, but I don't know what to do this, but I don't know what to do, but I don't know what to do like that. I feel like that keeps coming up over and over again. And right. so I would love to hear from, I mean, I know you just gave a couple of examples, but for anyone, which I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are feeling that, you know, yes, I'm, you know, being called or moved to do something, but I don't know where to start. Like, what do you, what would you say to those people? Right. Um, you know, I think the, the biggest thing is to start with the people who you're already with, start with, uh, the people in your family start with the people in your church or synagogue or religious community, start with the people in your town. I live in a small town in upstate New York of 15,000 people. And every time I walk down main street, I see, you know, it feels like half the town and can have interactions with them. You know, and we have a Facebook group and we have a next door group and we have all these different ways to interact. And so part of it is really how am I showing up in those places and how am I not just showing up as like I have all the answers, but like, hey, I'm in this and I'm learning with you. So I think the biggest thing, and sometimes I say that not to say that that's the easiest thing, right? Because sometimes having those conversations with people in our family is the hardest thing. 
Like I've been talking to a bunch of people who have been in huge conflict with their family because people in their family voted for Trump and they don't know how to talk with them about it. And I think the goal for me is less like how to convince people that he specifically is bad, but more like what are the policies that he is supporting? What is this going to look like for people who we love and care about? Um, And to build that resistance to like, what do our values actually say? You know, whether it's our Christian or our Jewish or our Muslim values, what are our religious values? What are the values of our community? And how do we build that capacity um, to build a community that's based on love and respect? And what does that actually look like? Because if we build off of those values, people generally aren't going to disagree. A lot of times it's just about asking people questions. Um, and figuring out ways to support them to get to the answer because people know what's right and what's wrong. And sometimes it's about engaging the people around us in those conversations and knowing that they're not going to change from one conversation. I mean, I've had times where I've been trying to move people on an issue and they come back to me six months after the first time we talked. And they're like, hey, thanks for talking to me about you know, I remember a guy in DC who I worked with like 10 years ago. He was like, thanks for talking to me about how I was always interrupting women. Um, you know, I never realized how big an issue it was. And now I see it and I've changed my ways. Mm, yeah. That, that idea that change can often take time, right? And you can have a conversation that maybe seems to have no impact, but you don't know what the impact or ripple down the line is going to be. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so funny that you mention, you know, being willing to show up and not have all the answers, right? I mean, who has all the answers? No one. But right. that it's there does. I, I noticed that in myself. I've talked about this before, but um, this kind of I think a lot of it has to do if you're someone who works for yourself. If you work online, there's like this. I don't know we put on a pedestal like being the one who is a leader, right? Or like creating the thing or having the answer. Like there's so much power in just showing up to someone else's thing, right? That like, mm-hmm. it was very freeing for me to just, okay, well, I don't know what to do. Let's see what people in my community are already doing and I can just go and help and be an active body. Like I don't have to have the, I don't know, that I think do, sometimes we do put pressure on ourselves to come up with the most unique thing to do or the perfect thing or the thing that's gonna solve all the problems or we wanna be a savior of something or whatever mm-hmm. your, whatever the cause is that you're involved in. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just, being having to kind of have that honest conversation with myself of actually you would be more valuable if you just go show up and help with things that are already underway. <laughs> like people have been doing this work for a really long time. And I don't know if that sounds silly, but it's honest. So. Oh my God, totally. I think that's totally honest. And I think that's one of the biggest things is how we show up in an everyday way and what that looks like and that people know that they can count on us. Yeah. So I'd love for you to talk about some of the work that you did when you were with Surge, showing up for racial justice. Talk about that. Yeah. So I started with Surge as a volunteer back in, uh, I think, 2009, maybe, Um, 2010. Um, Surge was an all-volunteer network at the time, and it was formed after President Obama got elected Um, uh, you know, there was a brief moment where a lot of white people were like, everything's going to be better. You know, we're in a post-racial society. And instead, what we saw was that there was this rise in attacks on people of color, on immigrants, on folks like Van Jones in the administration. 
Um, and there was also a rise in right wing and organizing. And so a big part of um, the way Surge was formed is that organizers of color came to the founders of Surge, who were women in the South, and they said, we need there to be white people who are taking action against racism. It can't always be people of color. And so for the first couple of years, Surge was pretty small. We worked with about a dozen groups around the country. And a lot of our work was really how do we um, build the capacity of white people to organize other white people and that that's a valid thing, that all of the work of white people against racism isn't just supporting people of color, but we actually have to work within our own communities. And this was a pretty radical idea at the time. And so, you know, we did a lot of trainings and traveling around the country and um, uh, and so a big part of, of the work was just talking to people and finding out what they were doing and what some of the challenges were. And then after, um, Mike Brown was murdered, we put out a action kit against police brutality and it got downloaded a couple of thousand times. And then after, um, I'm sorry. I just meant to say after Trayvon Martin was murdered down in Florida, that happened. And we put out the action kit about police brutality. About a year later, when Mike Brown was murdered in Ferguson, we put out an, uh, we, we got some calls from folks in Ferguson and around the organizing that was happening there. And they said, um, you know, this is also amazing, but we need support to make it happen. And so we helped fundraise and to connect them with fund uh, donors and a group called Resource Generation, which is made up of young people with wealth who, who support social justice causes. And when the non-indictment of Darren Wilson, the officer in the case, um, happened, there were, you know, all these white people who wanted to take action. And so we, it was the week of Thanksgiving that that non-indictment came down and we put out a call for a conference call and 4,000 people signed up in wow. about four days. Yeah. So it was something that we had never really dealt with before and that we didn't have a lot of experience with, but we got advice from other folks who had dealt with groups that big. And so we used a conference call service and we, we gave people actions to do and we were working in partnership with folks from Black Lives Matter and, and what turned into the movement for Black Lives um, to support their actions and to really elevate the work in Ferguson. And then for the next um, two years, pretty much any time that there was a police murder in Baltimore with Freddie Gray, in Charleston, um, the burning of the black churches in Cleveland, um, more and more people would want to get involved. And as that happened, more and more surge groups formed. So by last July, we were up to 150 groups around the country um, and thousands of people following us on Facebook and on our email list. Um, and really shifting the ways and the roles of white people in terms of organizing other white people and moving this work forward. Um, so it's really been an amazing couple of years. And I left in August um, because with Trump running for office, I really felt the need to work more directly on the campaign. And it's a really different role being a uh, an unpaid organizer than going on staff and being the director of something that was so big. And it's amazing all the things that Surge is doing. Even today, there were hundreds of people out in the street protesting in Washington, D.C. and across the country. And I know that that's just going to continue and grow. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so, I, I mean, that organization is a good example of like the folks listening who are like, I want something to do, but you know, what's going on in my city or whatever. That sounds like it could be a good place to start. Yeah. Surge is a great place to start. Folks can definitely look it up. It's um, showing up for racialjustice.org, um, also on Facebook, also on Twitter. Um, there's also lots of local groups across the country that are doing this work. Um, there's groups like Cosecha, which is organizing undocumented immigrants, and they have a group, Cosecha Allies, that folks can plug into. There's Indivisible, which is organizing folks across the country um, to take action against Trump and Trumpism, particularly around legislation. There's If Not Now, which is organizing young Jews across the country and Jewish Voice for Peace. Um, all of these have Facebook pages pages and websites and lots of different ways to get involved. And I will make sure to put links to that kind of stuff in the show notes too, because I feel like, I mean, this is of everything that we're talking about. I feel like it always winds up like boiling down to, okay, but what do I do? Right? (laughs) Like, what do I do? Like, that's just, I just hear that coming up over and over again. So having these organizations and places to start is really helpful. Yes. Yes. Go ahead. No, I was just agreeing. So for you personally, through working with Surge, what are some of the biggest lessons you'd say that you've learned through doing that work? Um, the biggest lessons that I've learned. Uh, I think there, there are so many lessons. I should write articles and articles. But um, I think some of the biggest ones are around knowing what I'm good at and knowing when to ask for help. Um, again, a lot of times as a white person, I'm trained to like believe that I can do it all and sort of pull myself up by my bootstraps and sort of that whole mythology of individualism and rugged individualism. Um, and the reality is, is that we all need other people and particularly in movement moments, like right now, it's never as good to do something ourselves as to ask other people to help us do it. So I think that's a big one that I learn again and again, um, Making sure that everybody um, has a role, you know, that there's plenty of roles and plenty of work to do. And it's just finding the right role for people and not being afraid to ask people to do big things. You know, one of the lessons I feel like from looking at Bernie Sanders campaign is that people took so much big action um, and were ready to step into much bigger roles. Um, And so I think part of the, the question is, how we can offer people really big roles um, when there is um, when when people are ready to step into them and not just to ask them to do one small thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You when you mentioned that's so interesting the kind of ingrained when you said you said something as as a white person that like the ingrained belief of I should be able to do anything by myself or that I think you said rugged individualism that's mm-hmm. super interesting. It makes me want to ask about other, I don't know, maybe ingrained beliefs that you have had to unlearn? Yeah. Um, there have been so many and I continue to learn them over and over. Um, I think I have ingrained beliefs that I have the answers that my experience is universal, that, um, my experience is right. And, um, I think I think I have a lot of ingrained beliefs and that a lot of us as white people do and that a big part of it is really around how to um, know that having the right analysis isn't enough, 
but that it's about taking action, you know, and again, going back to that idea of not being paralyzed about doing something wrong, but actually trying things and knowing that we're going to make mistakes and doing them anyway. And that, um, it's not enough to just have the perfect analysis, but not to do anything that you actually have to make those changes happen. And so, um, you know, to take action, to try to make them happen and to do that with other people. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I bet I'll have other ideas about that, but that's, that's my first thought. Yeah. I, that makes me think, I mean, I always think a lot about social media. I feel like it comes up in every single episode because I just, I don't know, like talking about social media, but I'm curious on your view of the role of social media and all this. Like, I don't know, I'm always wondering kind of where the line is between how it's a helpful tool versus how it can be sometimes or oftentimes this kind of echo chamber to yell into instead of doing harder work. I don't know if that sounds cynical, but I'd love to hear what you think about that. Um, can you ask me that again? I'm sorry. I think I didn't get it. No, that, so with social media, right? Like if you go, I don't know, you go on Twitter and it's really easy to retweet a bunch of stuff, right? That's like politically minded or to do whatever and to feel like, okay, I did something. And not that there isn't value in having public conversations, right? And sharing resources and that kind of stuff, but kind of where the line is between how social media helps and versus like when it's just this kind of echo chamber that masquerades as doing real work. Um, so I think that social media can give us that feeling that we're doing real work by reposting things, but I think it's also really important in that there are a lot of people, you know, I think about my friends with kids or about people who have different types of disabilities where so much of their community and connection is happening online. You know, and I think about all the people who've had conversations where they've been able to move family and friends and relatives through conversations online. So I think there is something about the limits of actions online. And I think if we think about it as the starting ground, you know, sort of like a gardener, how do we make the ground fertile and how do we build the 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 nutrients that are in the soil and loosen it up for the plants that are going to be there. You know, that the great aggregator of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram is that we can share these ideas and build a sense of a different world being possible. Um, and that that is really possible in so many ways because we get so much information that way now um, to, to share something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, again, there's, there's no right answer, right? Here's how you use social media. <laughs> I was more just yeah. curious on your opinion because it, it is an argument that I've heard. I don't know that just I've heard recently that it's like we'll get off social media and actually do something. And yet, I don't think that it's that simple because I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of really helpful community and stuff that comes from there. And I know some of the most educational resources that I have found for me personally have been that I found on the internet. Right. So it's like right, right. It's being able to take what works and then expand it, you know, into the local community. That's something I've been thinking about a lot, too, that I don't know. It's I think it's like sexier to try to think of huge, big actions, but getting involved really locally whenever possible. Um, I don't know. It's I think it's not as sexy, but is, you know, helpful. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think one of the the ways in which it is possible then to um to do this work is knowing that there are all the non-sexy parts of it. Um, and 
So it's not just what we share and, and how we do it, but then the follow-up from that. You know, I'm working with this group in California, the Courage Campaign, and since the election, um, there have been 80 different emergency community meetings that they've helped organize across the state of California. And there were 17 actions that their members did at legislators' offices today. And it's it's just through those connections that they have, you know, not just in San Francisco and Los Angeles and the big places that might be on the news, but in San Bernardino and in Bakersfield and the Central Valley and in North San Diego and in Ukiah, like these small places where people are taking action and building those connections together um, and figuring out how to do it. And that a lot of it is people who have never organized or been political in this way. Mm-hmm. Okay. So speaking of people who have never organized or been political in this way, in preparation, knowing I was going to have this conversation with you, I talked to some members of the community and kind of floated it as what's the really dumb seeming question, right? That you're like afraid to ask and like want to be talked about or whatever. And something that came up that I thought, um, was interesting that I just wanted to bring up to you. Someone said something about how the one of the most common suggestions of first steps for getting involved is calling your representatives, right? And when things mm-hmm. come up. And yet, for some reason, it's something that a lot of people have a lot of fear around and a lot of blocks around. Is there any advice that you can give for people that are like, I want to call my senators, but I'm terrified to do it, or I'm an introvert, or I'm not a phone person, or and all these things, as I'm saying them, I'm kind of laughing, but I think it's it's real. Like, that's a real fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it is a real fear that people have. And I think some of it is like being a little ridiculous and doing it anyway. Right. Like most people don't know how to call their legislators or don't know what to say the first time. And we're so lucky now because there are so many resources for doing it. And the more that you do it, the more you realize it's just another person at the end of the line. And the more you do it, you build a relationship with that person. And then maybe you go in and have a meeting at the office with other people. And then maybe you start seeing them at different local events and they start to know who you are and they start to, you know, care even more about your opinions. So I think it's even more possible right now to build some of those relationships and to sort of break down that feeling that it's really intimidating and hard to do that, but that it's really possible. Yeah, something that was helpful for me when I made my first kind of call your representatives call was actually saying that this is the first time I've done this. I have no idea what I'm doing. And like people are really receptive to that. Yes, yes, exactly. And that yeah. like, anyone you're talking to, I think about this a lot with digital communications to email, that kind of stuff. There's a real person on the other end of everything, right? A real person who has feelings, who understands what it's like to be afraid or to be, you know, it's it's so easy to get stuck in the kind of self-absorbed trap of, but I'm the only one who doesn't know how to, what to say. And I'm the only one who's going to look silly or I'm like, nope, everyone has the same fears, right? Like we're not special snowflakes and that's awesome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And so just being real about like, it's okay to have those fears and sort of like saying to yourself internally, like, it's okay, honey. Like, it's okay, sweetie, just to like your heart or to yourself and having that be okay while you try something new. Absolutely. So the other kind of big thing that came up um, in this kind of little private conversation of what do you want us to talk about that maybe you would be afraid to ask? Um, and it was around the idea of real work versus kind of performative ally theater. I don't know if that's mm. the right phrasing to use, but I would love for mm-hmm. you to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, to me, the difference between performative ally theater and real work is that a lot 
there's different types of real work, right? There's many kinds and there's really crucial things that um, white people can be doing um, to support people of color like work, doing childcare, doing fundraising, making meals, things like that, all super crucial. Um, but to me, the, the biggest part of the work is work that is um, engaging with other people who are like us. Like it can sometimes be way more interesting and um, sexy in certain ways and exciting to be with people of color as white people and a lot harder to be with other white people. And that I think to me is sort of the unsexy work is to know that um, uh, that actually in terms of doing this work, what's most needed is to be with, you know, our families and people in our communities who we see all the time, but who we don't think of as having the same politics as us. But like, those are the conversations that I feel like need to happen and the places where it happens. And so part of the challenge is, um, sort of getting over ourselves and be like, oh, I'm going to talk to my mom or I'm going to talk to that woman who I grew up with, who I see at the library or like the other parents in the parents group. And that that's also racial justice work. Yeah, which will and that makes brings up another thing. Do you have any I don't know, if t- any tips or any stories you can share of stuff that's worked for you in, in kind of how to talk to loved ones that have dramatically different opinions? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things is really to do less talking and more listening, Mm. right? So to ask questions about what people's experiences, you know, experience with people of color, experience with, um, with immigrants. And a lot of times what you'll realize is that people don't actually always have so much, um, experience and there might be fear or there might be the unknown. And so it's like how to really hear that and then share some of your own experience, right? So it's like listening to what people are saying, reflecting it back, talking about your own experience and then offering an opportunity to like, you know, continue to be in dialogue. Yeah, that's, I don't know what I was expecting you to say. I mean, nothing, obviously I have no agenda here, but that's, it's such a simple and profound answer. I think that there's such a tendency, I mean, I see this in myself for sure, to get preachy when you really believe in something, right? When you're like, I'm correct. And this is like, just to have that kind of moral self-righteousness, right? And I think we all fall into that from time to time. And uh, shocker, people don't respond well to that. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so leading with, you know, asking questions or trying to understand, you know, especially if it's like you said, your loved ones, the people that are in your actual life, being able to start there. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So when we were emailing before recording just about subjects to cover, you said something that caught my attention. Um, you said that you wanted to talk about the need to build bigger spaces for all the new people who want to get involved right now. What did you mean by that? Um, sort of like what I was saying before about how there's so many people, you know, like tomorrow's the women's March and everything I'm seeing right now on Facebook is all my friends who are like driving down there and everybody at every rest stop is going to the March. And, you know, the goal for me, and I think for a lot of people, like I read in articles that we have to see this March, not just as like an end unto itself, but as the beginning of resistance or a continuation of all the resistance work that's been happening. And I think part of 
recognizing that is realizing that um, people need roles and they need to feel wanted and they need to understand how it fits in and something that makes sense. So right now, the way I'm thinking about it a lot is, you know, looking again at the Bernie Sanders campaign, they had thousands and thousands of volunteers making phone calls, holding events in their homes or in their communities. And it wasn't perfect and it didn't have the best race analysis. And we need to have race at the center of everything. But what are the lessons to learn from that and other decentralized movements? Mm -hmm. about how we move more people into action and give them roles where they really get to build a local team and engage more and more people because we need everyone right now. And so how do people get to see and feel that in an ongoing way that their contribution is really crucial to making a difference? Yeah, well, that brings up something else that I think is also common, this idea um, or concern that, well, I'm just one person, so what I do doesn't matter. Right, right. And yeah, Yeah, I think that's totally a a huge concern. And I think one of the um, things about it is what does it take to feel like your work matters and you are needed in the process? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you reposted um, a video this morning on Twitter um, that was short and I can link to and this idea that rebellions are built on hope. Will you talk about that a little bit? Mm. Yeah, I think that's such a lovely idea. Um, I think a big part of it is just recognizing that um, we need to see the potential. Like people are so depressed about Donald Trump being elected and I totally get it. And that is totally crucial and real to be able to have that sadness and to mourn for the potential and the possibility that we thought was coming after Obama. Um, But there's also believing that another world is possible, you know, and there's that great quote from, uh, from Arundhati Roy, the author of the God of small things, where she says, you know, another world is coming. And in quiet moments, I can hear her breathing. It's a little bit of a, um, it's not an exact quote that I'm saying it, but that's the idea, um, is that hope is the belief that, that we are greater than the sum of our parts and that there are so many people who want to make this change happen. Um, you know, so right now I'm getting hope from poetry and music and actions, like all the actions that happen in Washington, D.C., and just the fact that everywhere I go, people are saying, I have to do more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that kind of switching gears into, you know, where you're getting hope and inspiration and just is where, I mean, you mentioned a couple of things, poetry, obviously, who are you learning from right now? Like, who are you looking to as teachers? That's a great question. Um, hmm. um, so I think some of it is spiritual teachers, you know, people like um, Sharon Salzberg and Sylvia Borenstein and Pema Chodron, who are all Buddhist teachers. I think a lot of it is the people who I'm working with in different organizations. You know, I think there are a ton of incredible movement leaders like the founders of Black Lives Matter, who are three amazing black women. Um, I think there's the young leaders of Cosecha and If Not Now who are doing awesome work. Um, I think there's uh, people from Standing Rock and from the movement uh, against the Dakota Access Pipeline. I think there's inspiration all over. Um, 
uh, right now I feel like I'm also learning a lot from a lot of kids in my life by seeing how resilient they are um, and how they're responding in this moment because I think a lot of the adults in my life are really shattered. Um, uh, and a lot of the kids are moving forward and don't have an expectation that things are going to remain the same and they can continue to operate. And that's really impressive as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being able to kind of cultivate both hope and resilience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned kind of at the top of the conversation, uh, periods in your life where you got really burned out. And so I would love to hear kind of what self-care looks like for you. Um, I know yoga is a part of your life. Um, just anything that you feel like helps you take care of you so that you can do this work. Um, yeah, yoga is definitely a piece of it for me. Um, I have been a practitioner for about 15 years now and I'm also a teacher. So I try to be on the mat every day. I also meditate, um, eating good food, spending time with friends, taking baths, um, being in nature, spending time with kids and with animals. Yeah. There's a lot of practice in all of those things. Yeah. I, speaking of spending time with the animals, I never had <laughs> pets growing up. That was just, we lived in apartments. We traveled a lot. It was not a part of my life. And it wasn't until my now husband, you know, he has had a cat for 10 years. And so, oh, well now all of a sudden I have a cat too. And then we got another cat. And so now, you know, being cat people, I didn't realize how, this sounds so silly for people who grew up with pets, just like how calming and wonderful it is to just spend time with an animal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like sounds like a silly small thing, but it can actually be really restorative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's completely, it like changes your brain waves. Yeah. Um, so I think it's so crucial and particularly in times like that. Oh, you know, there's a quote from Audre Lorde where she talks about how self-care isn't an indulgence. And so right now I think, you know, right after the election, I went and did some speaking gigs and I spoke at a college in Stanislaw in the northern part of the Central Valley in California. And one of the students said, I've only been an activist for a week and I'm really tired. What should I do? And I was like, oh, and they they were like, I'm afraid that I won't be able to keep going. And so I was talking about how you stay in it for the long haul. You know, like you sleep and you eat and you drink water and you spend time with friends. And particularly if you're in school or if you have a job, you have to be able to keep doing those things to support yourself. Most of us don't have the luxury of doing this full time. And so how we sustain ourselves from the work that we do is really crucial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And being able to be honest with yourself about where your limitations are on any given day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So before we start to wrap up, is there anything else that's on your mind that you would like to share either on kind of the role of white people and where we go from here or just anything that hasn't come up yet in this conversation that you think, yes, people need to know X? Yeah. Um, I think the most important thing is just to take action um, and to have this be a moment where um, uh, everybody figures out what their spot is. Like it isn't a time to um, sit on the sidelines, but we need everyone in the game. And so I think for all of us as white people, there's a role in that and how we engage the other white people in our lives. And even knowing that some of those conversations are going to be super, super hard. You know, it's like looking at the tweets from the, the people who voted for Trump who didn't realize that the 
Americans, the Affordable Care Act was the same as Obamacare and that they depend on it and have pre-existing conditions and they feel so betrayed. Like there are going to be opportunities all the time because so much of what Trump said and so much of his racism and sexism and xenophobia is going to continue to come out that there are going to be opportunities. But if we're judgy of people, they're not going to feel like they can talk to us about it. Whereas if we are open to them and supportive and engaging with them in an ongoing way, there's just going to be a lot of potential. Yeah, I love what you said about, you know, doing your best not to be judgmental, like not to try to play the game that I do see happening online of like, I'm... I'm the most not racist, right? Or like, right. I, like <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what to call that. That was like terrible yeah. articulation, but I definitely was like, look at, look at how progressive I am, right? That yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So the way that we wrap these up are with what we call community questions, and it's a series of kind of rapid fire questions that the listeners want me to ask all eight guests this season. So nine kind of random questions for you if you are down for that. Totally. What is your favorite thing to eat for breakfast? Uh, yogurt with chia seeds and fruit. I have been making kind of an <laughs> overnight oat thing with you. It's like oats yes. and chia seeds and like then it comes all like amazing in the night. And then in the morning, mm. you know, you have this like amazing so pudding good. thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, the next question, what would you say is your biggest challenge or obstacle personally that you are facing right now? Um, the biggest challenge or obstacle that I'm facing right now, um, I just went through a breakup and my ex moved out. So I'm redecorating my house with a lot of different stuff or a lot less stuff and sort of remembering what it's like to be a single person again after four years. Yeah. Oh, I hear that. That is definitely qualifies as a challenge or obstacle. I hear you there. I hear you. Um, What would you say is a regular habit or behavior of yours that has most contributed to your happiness in recent years? Mm. Uh, Time outside with my dog. Isn't time outside the best? Yes. It's just so yes. we're in like crazy winter snow ice storm situation here. And I have had very little time outside and it's only the absence of having it that I'm realizing how much I need to have it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So continuing on with the topic of habits, what is one daily or regular habit that you would love to develop or maybe experiment with this year? Um, well, I made a commitment at the beginning of the year to meditate every day. So I'm on day, um, I started the day before New Year's, so I'm on day 21 and it seems like it's changing my perspective a little. That is my 2017 thing also. (gasps) So I'm curious on your meditation practice, what does that look like for you? Um, I use a timer, an app called the Insight Timer. Um, and I usually either do it first thing in the morning or the last thing at night. And usually I do it without any sort of guide. Um, and I've been ranging between five and 20 minutes a day. Nice. Yeah. I am using the headspace app. I don't know if you've Mm. ever tried that, but, um, I have tried and failed to build a meditation practice for like four years. So I'm like, okay, I actually really want it this year. This is going to happen. And so, so far it's been a helpful tool, but yeah, it's, uh, awesome training the mind, right? And I'm like, hopefully this is going to set me up on a foundation for, I don't know, not being so reactive and 
all of that. Mm-hmm. So the next question is, will you share some of the best advice that you have ever received? Um, be clear on what you can't do as much as what you can do. Oh, what do you mean by that? Like make a list. I remember someone gave this to me when I was leaving a job and they said, make a list of the things that you're not going to do before you leave. And I was like, oh, that's really useful. Like I make a list that's like endless and way too much of all the things I am going to do. But what do I do about the things that I'm not going to do? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever thought about it that way. That's interesting. That is good advice. Yeah. What's something that you really love about yourself? My sense of humor. That's my jokes. It. You know, it's funny. That was someone else's answer this season too. And I'd never heard that before <laughs> as an answer, but that's, that's awesome. I love that. Um, nice. The next question, how do you pull yourself out of like a funk or a rut for you? What works to get you reengaged in your work or your goals when you're just feeling really like blah, I don't want to. Usually taking some space from it and doing some things for myself, like um, taking a bath, um, taking some a walk with my dog, um, spending time with friends, watching bad TV, things like that. Watching bad TV really does help. It's like I don't want to admit that it helps, but it really does. <laughs> it totally does. Yes. So the next question is about books. What two or three books, and they can be any genre, any type of books, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you love and reread the most? Um, what genre of books? Or books, uh, no, books specifically, any genre. Oh, what books specifically? Yeah. Um, I think there's there's um, certain certain novels like The Age of the Innocence and Pride and Prejudice that I go back to again and again. Um, there's also a couple of organizing books. There's one called The Axioms for Organizers by Fred Ross um, Sr., who recruited Cesar Chavez that I read a lot. Um, and then cookbooks. Ooh, okay. Like what, any favorites? Uh, yeah, I really like, um, oh, what is it called? There's this woman, Heidi Swanson. Oh yeah, she's great. Yeah. So her cookbooks, I read all the time. I will put links to all of these. Yeah. I like her stuff a lot too. (laughs) Um, so the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, maybe a question to ask themselves or a small specific thing to do in the next week or so, what would it be? Um, let's see. In the next week or so, what would be the one small thing? I would say it's to have a conversation with someone in your life where you think they might be supporting Trump and really just try and listen to them and hear what they're saying. Yeah, that's a good one. I love that. So what's the best place for people to find you, find your work, maybe say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect? Um, you can follow me on Facebook. You can follow me on Twitter. You can go to my website, which is a little bit out of date. Those are probably the best ways. There's also email. Um, you can also follow the group that I work with power labs. We have an email that comes out every couple of weeks with good links to different social justice resources. Um, and the website is power labs. IO. I will definitely, this is going to be a good link filled show notes. So definitely everyone listening, check out the show notes, but thank you so much. This was, I mean, fun and informative and just great. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. 
And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by people like Katie. Hi, Katie. Hi, Nicole. So we're going to play a quick three-question round of my favorite game, and that game is Would You Rather. So are you ready? Yes. This is my favorite thing. Um, (laughs) Would you rather be the funniest person in every room or the smartest person in every room? I'm going to have to go with the funniest person in every room, like hands down. Why? Because I feel like smart people can sometimes rub people the wrong way. And everybody loves a super funny person. Yeah, I agree. I, it's funny. I like always answer these in my head when I'm picking them and I would get into these. I like can't sleep at night and I'm like thinking, what would I do? What I rather. And uh, yeah, I, at first I thought the smartest because that has to have some advantages, not necessarily you versus anyone else, but then that probably means you're really smart, right? Which like plays out well in other areas yeah. of your life. But I don't know. I feel like being the funniest might be better for community and bonding. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like if I was the smartest person in every room, I feel like that would go to my head and I would get really <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Or maybe, maybe just I would be really bored, right? (laughs) Always the smartest one. That's that's funny. Um, Okay, so would you rather win fifty thousand dollars for yourself, or have your best friend win five hundred thousand dollars? And either way, you guys can't share any money. So either you get fifty thousand dollars for you, or your best friend gets five hundred thousand dollars. Oh. Right about now, I'm going to play this super selfish game, and I'm going to take the $50,000. Yeah, I I feel like the no sharing is what makes it really hard, right? Because in that situation, if someone, if I'm like, hey, here you go, here's $500,000, give me half. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I, I'm going to... I could, I could definitely use that $50,000 right now. <laughs> Yo, I hear that. That is true. All right, the last one. Would you rather be in jail for 10 years or be in a coma for five years? I think that is, wow, that is kind of terrible. But I would have to go with I'm going to go with being in jail for 10 years. Yeah, I would choose that too. I don't necessarily know why I would choose it, but I would choose it. I feel like to have something, well, no, because I was going to say, if you're in a coma, obviously something seriously traumatic has have to happen, but kind of the same. Well, maybe if you're in jail, it could have been a false conviction. Right, right. This, <laughs> this like, isn't set up on like... A coma is just all around bad news. <laughs> no, I mean, definitely. But this is, yeah, the question is not set up to be like, okay, you have to kill someone and then you have to go to jail. Right? Like, yeah. Yes. That's amazing. It's my favorite game. Okay. Um, So why don't you introduce yourself to the rest of the listeners real quick. Maybe tell everyone where you live and one thing that you are totally obsessed with right now. All right. I am Katie and I live in New Jersey. And one thing that I am totally obsessed with right now is I just spent the weekend in London And on the plane ride there and back, they had the great British Bake Off. Oh, my God. 
Don't even um, start with me on how amazing the Great British Bake Off is. So uh, I've watched the American version of the British Bake Off just because I love cooking shows and was kind of like meh about it. But after an entire, like I'm talking the entire flight to London and the entire flight back, watching, binge watching the Great British Bake Off, I, d- I did not sleep at all. I it is I am Googling recipes. I am I am absolutely obsessed. It's It's kind of an issue. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's an excellent life choice. I have seen every single episode, all of the masterclass episodes, all of like the look back episode. It's the best, honestly. I mean, obviously, I love baking for sure. But there's just something so delightful about, I don't know, all pretty much all American competition shows, like they're all kind of like nasty and backstabby and like so much drama. Like this is just this delightful. Everyone supports each other. Let's just like bake amazing things. So good. Oh my God. And the hosts are hilarious. I was literally dying laughing for half the time. And that just does not come across at all on the American version. I know they're so amazing. I, so this most recent season that just ended was the last season. That's going to be all of them. Like the hosts and both of those judges. Cause the show, yeah, yeah the show moved channels. And so, the only one who's staying is Paul Hollywood. Everyone else is gone. So we'll see what it turns into. But I mean, if you've only watched started watching it, there's like seven seasons for you to watch. So yeah, you have plenty. Sure. And Paul has some pretty stunning eyes. So I should be okay. He also has another show um, that came out last year that I love called Paul Hollywood City Bakes, where basically like he goes to different cities around the world and just like... M- I don't know, like investigates baking there, like goes to their best bake. It's it's amazing. So I think you would like that too. Well, I will definitely put that on my list of things to watch. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a small and powerful pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show and maybe your favorite thing about being in the Patreon community. Absolutely. Well, I started listening to podcasts because I am a runner like many other listeners. And sometimes podcasts are the only thing that get me out the door when I really don't feel like uh, going out for a run. It's nice to know that I feel like listening to some podcasts, you at least have some company. And at the end of the run, even if it wasn't as great as you hoped it would be, you've generally learned something. <laughs> so that has helped a lot. Um, and I was so excited when you made this a listener supported podcast because it makes me feel good um, being able to support um, something that I feel that I benefit so much from. And I feel like that resonates with a lot of other listeners as well. Um, And I've really enjoyed listening to the other listener um, interviews because it's nice to know that there's other people out there just like you listening to the podcast that you love to listen to and doing a lot of the same things. So it's nice to feel like we all have this, this little community that we're a part of. Yeah, I love that. The community aspect is going to be huge for 2017. Like, obviously, you've seen behind the scenes things that we're, you know, we're going to have a book club. We're going to have, like, there's just going to be lots more ways for people who are listeners of the show and part of the community to kind of 
have little online play dates with each other. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, um, it's always great to get to know each other better. Totally. So you're the best. Thank you so much for being brave and for joining me for this. Thank you. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, and if you want 30 plus hours of bonus content with new stuff added every month, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better behind the scenes in our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.